you have to want to write a book because you want you have something to say, not because you're trying to make money or any of that other stuff. Saying, how are you? I'm fine. And creating this kind of facade. All right, that's it. I'm going. Put a bag on my back and got a one-way ticket. You know, I realize I'm just not living in the present moment and I really want to be <laughs> more present. You know what? I want to try something a little different. Let's just navigate that in a way that's like healthy and sane. Put these pieces together, it could be a book. Some good writing right there. <laughs> it's, br <laughs> it's brilliant. Brilliant, right? yeah, brilliant. Right? Welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this podcast to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. Most of my guests are authors, and in each episode, I explore their life journeys and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read, so that you can use these same strategies and tactics too. So, if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Dr. Ben Michaelis, an action-oriented psychologist, elite performance coach, professional thought partner, and the author of Your Next Big Thing, 10 Small Steps to Get Moving and Get Happy. In his private practice, based in Manhattan, Dr. Michaelis works with entrepreneurs, authors, actors, musicians, artists, and executives. He's frequently featured as a mental health expert on various television and radio programs, such as The Today Show, Fox News, MSNBC, and he's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Vanity Fair, the Oprah Magazine, Parents Magazine, Women's Health, Glamour, and many others. In this conversation, we talk about play as the barometer of health. We also talk about surviving versus thriving and how to know when you might benefit from working with a therapist and how to choose one. Ben has some extensive experience, more than 15 years working with people in his role as a therapist and he's traveled extensively. I think you'll enjoy our wide-ranging conversation and getting to know Dr. Ben. Dr. Ben, how about <laughs> Dr. Ben, okay. welcome. That Doc, works. That Dr. Works. Ben, welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah. You know, I've been looking forward to our conversation. I think I told you that I finished reading your book on the fourth deck of a Disney cruise line. And it was beautiful. <laughs> it was just, it was really great. And I had time to reflect and introspect. And uh, I really enjoyed your next big thing, 10 small steps to get moving and get happy. So thank you for that. Yeah, and I'm glad. And I, I actually encourage most people to read the book on a Disney Cruise Line, if at all possible. Um, <laughs> I know you're a bit a big Goofy fan. So like, you know, if you can watch it with or listen to or listen to it or read it when you are uh, in the presence of any Disney characters, I think it enhances the experience. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Punctuated on either side by massage treatments and eating anything <laughs> or everything. Now, I actually, you know, when I got on the ship, they said I, I went up to the fitness center to check it out right off the bat. And they were doing a little promo in there. And, and one of the trainers in the space said, on average, People who cruise gain one pound per day. I was like, that will not be me. <laughs> and it wasn't, right? No, it wasn't. Yeah, I could tell. You look, yeah. you look, well, we both, we just established that we're both marathoners. So, uh, you know, I, yeah. uh, I'm sure you were exercising a fair amount. That is true. That's right. We found, I shared just before we started recording here that um, I was checking out your Facebook page last night. I saw the photos of your experience running the New York Marathon last year and I'm curious, what was that like? So the New York City Marathon is um, and just an amazing, amazing experience. I feel like once once you've done the New York City Marathon, and this is no offense to any other marathons out there, but like the other ones that I've done have been uh, not as uh, exciting. Uh, and it's I just feel like the energy of this city really comes out, um, especially the outer boroughs. I feel like people just – people in the Bronx – um, people in in Brooklyn, um, people in Queens, they just show up. Like one of my favorite things is that you're running through Upper Manhattan and the Bronx right as churches are getting out, and so and people are like so psyched, and they come out, and their church groups come out, and they give they give water, and they just give cheers, and it's just like such good energy. It's like the best. It's one of the best days of the year here in the city, New York City. Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful. I was fortunate to get in that same year running for a charity. 
Uh, I did. I certainly didn't qualify, and I and I didn't get it through the lottery. But that day, um, it was really special. It was a neat way to see the city. Awesome. So, well, let me ask you a question that I I like to begin with, which is, what's life about? So you're starting small. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we did the we did the small talk. Yeah. Let's just jump right you know, in. I think that life is about um, some, you know, everyone kind of creates their meaning. I mean, humans are meaning making creatures and it is in order to move forward in life, in order to um, feel good about life, you have to establish some sort of purpose, which can change and does change and does vary. But um, for me at this point, I feel like my life is about service. Um excuse me, I'm really focused on service. Everything from like literally like getting a cup of coffee for someone to being a therapist um, to, you know, I, I run these groups now and um, I, I feel like, you know, it can seem a little bit trite maybe to some people, but the, honestly, the, I found that the more that I serve, the better I feel and just my life just feels fuller. No, that's that's not surprising to me. It's something that I remember reading about um, when I was reading some of the works of Jung. And I, I was a little surprised because I think I have this image that in the past, the world was perfect. Like everyone was happy, <laughs> you know, yeah. people got along, you know, this kind of thing. And, and there was something he said that about a third of the people who came to see him, uh, people, you know, people don't know Jung is um, kind of a, the father of so much thinking that we that we benefit from now and and a, and a therapist and um he said that about a third of the people that came to see him came because of a general sense of meaninglessness in life and and I thought oh that was true like <laughs> that was true 60 years ago wow that's still true totally so let me ask you this with your with when you introduce people uh yourself to people and I know you do a lot of media um, and, and like you said, you run these groups, you work as a therapist based there in New York city. Um, how do you generally introduce yourself? I know it probably depends on where you are and who's asking, but, but how do you often respond to that question? You know, it's, it's sort of a, you know, it really, I, I hate to be, um, I'm not trying to be squirrely, but it really depends on the context. Um, if I'm, it's sort of in a professional context, you know, I, I really do start with like, you know. I'm sort of, I'm, I am genuinely here to serve you. I think that that can throw people off in certain social contexts. And so I'm, you know, I really just try to engage people with wherever they are. I tend to be pretty playful. And so um, I, I, my first instinct for most people is to play. So I was at a wedding on Saturday night where um, I literally didn't know, except for my wife, I didn't know anyone, not a single soul. And, um, you know, I was there to support my wife and she, you know, um, w- w- knew the groom. And um, I just like went over to this table of people and was like, hey, how's everybody doing? And just like I asked everyone like what their favorite sort of junky TV show is. And immediately people kind of lit up and I learned about a, a lot about some really good junky TV shows. And um, and I actually really, really liked these people, <laughs> really connected with all and they were fascinating um, it's one historian, uh, one woman who was in design, uh, and two attorneys. Um, but it was really just fun. Like, you know, people really, I think really genuinely do want to play. Um, and if you kind of give them permission to, they'll, 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 they'll play as long as you let them. Yeah. You know, I actually had that on my list to ask you about because there, there's only three lines from your book that I pulled out and put in my notes to ask more about. And this is one of them. Uh, you write, I think of play as a barometer for emotional health. So you're talking about that now, but say more about that. What do you mean? What is, how do you use play as a barometer for emotional health? So play is one of these things that is a natural, is a natural language that all humans across society, ha, uh, societies have been documented to play. Uh, it's a way of understanding the world and making sense of the world, um, being imaginative, and, um, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, tussling with each other a little bit, you know, like if you see dogs kind of wrestling with each other. And the key is, and there's a fair amount of research on this, uh, both with humans and with um, actually with dogs, um, 
that we need to feel safe in order to play. And you can, if you don't feel emotionally safe, you, you're just, you can't, you can't play. And so that's why I do think it is a barometer for health. And, and it works like most things. It works both ways. If you have a moment, like, to be honest with you, I was, I was uncomfortable at this wedding because uh, I didn't know anyone, but I just sort of went to my natural instinct and ended up having honestly like a great time. Um, so it does work both ways, but, but it is, it's, it's, it's critical, um, to enjoy life is to be playful. I can see that for sure. And I think about, you know, meetings I've been in where things are just really tense, you know, they're, they're serious and there's not a lot of play in the room. And somebody once suggested to me that the person who is most playful, the person who's willing to lead with humor is often the person in control of the room in a way. (laughs) And I'd never, I'd never thought of that, but like you're saying, I think how we create, you know, we can create a safe space by demonstrating it and then inviting others into it. Such a, such a powerful thing. I love that. I love that idea. And I think too, of something I heard Osho say once about when you are ready to play, then you are enlightened. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. (laughs) Well, I know you spent some time traveling. I understand you traveled to the Middle East. You went to India, Tibet. Tell me a little bit about your travels, why you went, what you learned, and maybe any impact it's had on your life or your writing. You know, I think that uh, <clears throat> at the time, I was, it was my early 20s, and I, just, I was feeling a bit disenchanted in some ways with, um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to be doing for a living, and um, I was actually doing some interesting stuff, but it just didn't quite feel fulfilling for me, and I decided that I was going to, uh, you know, I actually <laughs> I convened a group of people at that time to just kind of talk about what people were, were, were doing, and... This one woman had just come back from India and she talked about the Himalaya and she was like talking about how, how meaningful it was to her. And I was like, all right, that's it. I'm going. And so I, uh, I, I quit my job about five, six months later, put a bag on my back uh, and got a one-way ticket uh, and just started meeting people and kind of having adventures. Uh, I, this was a very different time in India. Uh, the internet was barely... Uh, present there really wasn't and um, and it was in some ways the one of the most significant experiences of my life I actually studied Buddhism with um, with a couple of monks and did um, have a, a brief very brief audience with um, the Dalai Lama uh, and in Dharamshala and I I just got a chance to be with people from all different, walks of life and would routinely just sort of take up with a couple of people and then go on an adventure with them and then meet someone else and go on an adventure for that with them. And so for the better part of a year, that was my life. Uh, and, you know, and, and especially in like, um, far Northern India, uh, and, um, Nepal, you know, these are, these are Buddhist, uh, cultures and people there just, besides being really peaceful, they're actually, they're so warm and generous. So like most of the times I didn't stay in hotels. I just stayed in people's homes. They would just say, Hey, stay in our guest room, um, and have dinner with us. And even if they're, they didn't speak English very well, there was some, a lot of, interestingly enough, a lot of the kids knew English. Uh, the parents did not. So I was able to communicate somewhat through the children. They were just so incredibly generous and, um, just the, the, the ability to just kind of be in such a magical place, I think, was just honestly critical to my emotional development. Hmm. What, what has stayed with you from that time? Like what have, what, what have, what's become a part of you or what maybe something you think about or something you do as a result <laughs> of the time you spend in that culture? So I'll tell you one thing that was really funny. It still, it still does stay with me, but, um, so I'm a New Yorker. I've been a New Yorker for most of my life. And one of the things about the, the travels uh, that I had there was, that was so interesting in that culture in general, uh, whether it was Northern India or Southern India is that people just look at you. Like if you're like interesting looking, people just look at you. And with no, no intention, just like, oh, you're interesting to look at, so I'm going to look at you. <laughs> and I came back to New York and started doing it just habitually, and people were like, what? They like, thought I was going to either hit them or hit on them. Like, 
they didn't know how to handle it. There was like always like some assumed intention. And I was just like, I just had gotten used to just like looking at people because people are really interesting looking like, you know, not, you know, people that are, that are naturally attractive or not particularly naturally attractive of all shapes and sizes. Like if you just, I just wish we could like look at each other a little bit more because we, we really are quite interesting to look at. And we, we, I mean, it is, it is not, I mean, I live in Brooklyn like people here are not like they're not psyched if you're looking at them. They're like, "What? What do you? What do you got?" Um, so, uh, so that's one. I think about that a lot. Uh, and you know, one thing that I think that unfortunately as a society we've lost is even if you're not looking directly at someone, it's just people watching. Yeah, like just kind of like observing people. And I feel like we tend to just look at our phones when we have a minute. And we don't look at each other. And I, I have to stop and remind myself. I, there's a place um, right near the Flatiron Building, which is right near my office in Manhattan, where I sometimes I just sit and like and like I keep my phone away and I just look at people because um, we really are we're fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and here's something I'd love to get your perspective on. You know, with your background as a therapist, is I heard Sadhguru once say that. In India, he said, in India, we don't ask people how they're doing. We just look at them, you know, and, and it was his kind of hypothesis that a lot of the, the mental unwellness in our country is created by the dissonance between saying, how are you? I'm fine. And creating this kind of facade when we're saying one thing, but experiencing another. And then, of course, we amplify that with social media, you know, and this kind of thing. But what's your, what's your take on that? I mean, is it something that you've experienced thought a lot about uh, as a culture, obviously we're very different from what you just described of like looking at people and really seeing them versus just giving like a cursory answer, you know, because when people ask, they don't often want to know, you know, but what's your thought on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd never heard that uh, quote, but it's certain, it certainly uh, echoes my own experience in the different cultures. And, um, I've really taken to people who answer that question genuinely uh, lately, and I try to answer it as genuinely as I can um, because it is just a social sort of moray, but you can you can use it as an opportunity to get closer to people uh, when you actually take it as a genuine question and to tell them kind of what's going on for you. And some people, it, thro- it throws them off. It's almost a, um, uh, let me say a litmus test, but it sort of is a litmus test for like who you're talking to. Cause some people are like, oh, sweet. We want to get real. Like, let's do it. And some people, um, you know, don't, d- they want to back away from that very quickly. Tell me, so I want to talk now a little bit about, about your book, your next big thing. Um, who did you write this book for and what did you want it to do for them? Um, I love that question because it was actually written for one woman um, in particular. So the book was inspired by, and I, I didn't actually set out to write a book. I, so I had this woman that I worked with who changed my life. Um, she was a woman in her forties who was uh, a single mom and she was working at a job that she really, she called it a soul sucking job. And she was quite depressed. And to be honest with you, Brian, like nothing that my training had uh, provided me was helping her. So I was, I felt pretty frustrated to be honest with you. I felt like I was wasting her time and my time that I was, she was just really, really, really depressed. And the only thing that gave her any joy at all was her, her daughter. Um, and I, at some point I just kind of threw out all of my training and I just said, Hey, you know what? I want to try something a little different. Let's just, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and I want you to sort of imagine something with me. I want you to imagine your great, great granddaughter. And I want you to get to know her in your mind. Think about her. What does she eat for breakfast? What clothes does she wear? Who does she hang out with? What does she do for fun? Really 
really imagine her and then sort of turn your mental camera around towards yourself. And I want you to consider what you've done to add to her life. And when she opened her eyes, she had an incredibly clear answer. She said, I want to make a piece of jewelry for her to wear to her senior prom. And in that moment, something really significant happened for her. She, this is not someone that was active in, uh, you know, jewelry or anything like that. Um, she, she had been very interested in beading when she was younger, but she, from that moment on, like became a, a jeweler. She began making creations coming to my office with these really interesting ornate pieces and some of them were really cool. And it was something that I did that just worked. It just worked. And <clears throat> I began to sort of try more sort of visualizations and things like that with her that helped her along her journey. And she was fortunate uh, to have been one of the people that sort of um, caught the first wave of um, Etsy, uh, Etsy.com. And so she went on to do pretty well for herself wow. uh, as a jeweler and uh, selling pieces on Etsy and in the shops here in the city. And for her, I think, I mean, our work together was life-changing and there, a lot of things came from that. And, and, and it was very powerful for me to be like, oh, wow. Um, I didn't, I, I really did not, not think that that was going to work. Uh, and, um, and a lot of things emerged from that. And I just kept writing down notes about things that were working in our work together. And at some point I was sitting in a, uh, farmhouse in Vermont and I was like, you know, if you put these pieces together, it could be a book and not having, not knowing anything about that. But, uh, I, decided I wanted to write uh, like a book for this woman because she changed my life. And, you know, in the publishing world, things change a fair amount and they kind of wanted to broaden it. And so it ended up being vignettes uh, about different people that I'd worked with. But, but she was really the primary person that I was writing it for. I can honestly say that the two of us sort of had this experience and we changed each other's lives. Oh, that's, <clears throat> that's really beautiful. You know, I love... That, that brings to mind something I read Vonnegut once said about uh, writing advice. He said, write for just one person. <laughs> and that's exactly what you did. That's really cool. Yeah. So what, so you wrote it for this woman, but what has the response been? What, how is it? I mean, this is something that I found gratifying with my first book was you never know who's going to get it and what it's going to do for them. And then to have little, you know, messages come back and hear how it's touched people. What, what were your hopes for the book when you when you released it into the world and then what has the response been like for you? So, you know, I I just wanted it to hit as many people as it could. Um and it's really taken me on a lot of pretty interesting journeys. I um this group of clergy had found it and then they asked me to come and uh spend some time with some of their clergy members who were retiring and I've actually remained in contact with this this uh, this group uh, over the years and helped them, you know, have just, you know, kind of, I haven't been around the world with it, but I've definitely been around the country with it uh, and been invited to, to just take part in different things and meet different people. And, um, and it's really opened me up to sort of touching people's lives on a sort of broader scale. That's great. So speaking of, you know, our country, you, you've been across the country and, and talked to a lot of different people. Um, this is something that I, I really wanted to get your perspective about, which is it's, I mean, it's a kind of like, what the hell's going on in our country right now? You know, just with so much, I mean, to see suicide rates have increased 25% in two decades, you know, I, I just read that we're having an opioid overdose, a death every nine minutes, right? And it's, you see the rates of depression and loneliness and, you know, now there's a lot of like political back and forth and all this, but what, I mean, the question isn't so much like what's going on, but how can we as individuals navigate that in a way that's like healthy and sane? I mean, what's your, what's your take on that? 
the systems that have been put in place for benefiting society haven't haven't benefited everyone and the same very same systems that have been put in place for society to to improve people's standard of living have harmed um, our environment and I think that between those things and the technological disruptions we've experienced over the last 20 years, people are feeling very afraid. And when people are afraid, they tend to look for answers. And I think that we look for answers. We, we, we look for simple answers first and there's, these are very complex issues that we're talking about. And I think that the best thing that we can do, or my hope for all of this, is that we re-engage as we re-engage with one another, we have better conversations, and don't move away from people that are different from us, but engage them. We've become so polarized about our, you know, the solutions that most of us don't even engage. We don't look at each other. We certainly don't talk and listen. And I think that that is the most important thing right now because we are we're definitely in some uh, uncertain times. Yeah, you know, something you talk about in your book, and I think about if we're going to be, if we're going to engage, if we're going to look at each other, if we're going to hear each other, you know is the idea of presence, about living in the now. And this was one of the other sentences from your book I, I wrote down and want, want to ask you about. It's actually two sentences. You write, living in the now is a deceptively simple idea. It means that wherever you are physically, you are also there psychologically and emotionally. Right. So I think just about everybody knows that. But one of the things I love is the way that you describe when you're not here, when you're not in the moment, psychologically and emotionally, that they're, you're one of three other places, right? I think you talked about the past, the future, or elsewhere, which mm-hmm. I really like. But will you kind of develop that a little bit or explain, explain that and anything else related to living in the now that, that seems interesting to you? Yeah. You know, depression is typically quite past-based, so it's either pining for uh, being where, uh, being sometime in the past, or you know, wishing that you were in the past, or um, or thinking about something sad from your past. And so, when people are depressed, which I've certainly seen, you know, in my office, um, they tend to be not present, but really past focused. And anxiety tends to be really future focused. Um, what's coming next? What's, what's, what, what's going to be? What if, what if? And so anxiety is very much being in, in the future, uh, at least in the mind and in the, and depression is, you know, being in the past and neither of them are true, right? It's just in your mind. And so there's something we know that we're kind of lying to ourselves almost if we're spending too much of our mental energy in the past or or in the future and we're not really engaging with life as it's coming to us, which is, you know, unhealthy. And then the other the other place that we can be if we're not where we are is just elsewhere. And elsewhere can be fantasizing about things, distracting ourselves with things like television or alcohol or drugs, any, any of those things are, um, look, again, everything in moderation, right? Like, I think it's fine to think about the past um, if you can learn from it and to think about the future if you can plan for it. And I think it's fine to be recreational with some of these things, but too much of any one of them can lead to real problems. And the best that we can do is to, again, be aligned emotionally, psychologically, and physically. Again, it seems sort of simple, but it's not. And it's a very, you know, sort of the 
if you spend any time meditating, um, our mind just naturally tends to wander away and we have, you know, it requires real training to bring it back to the moment, uh, usually by focusing on the breath. And so that's, that's what I, really what I mean. So when, when you're working with someone, I mean, I imagine people probably don't come to your office, maybe very often at least, saying, you know, I realize I'm just not living in the present moment and I really want to be <laughs> more present. That's probably not the presenting issue. Um, but when you see it, what is it that you see in someone? And you've talked about depression and anxiety, but can you talk about something specific that maybe you see commonly that for you, you're like, oh, yeah, if I can help this person be more present, that's going to really help them. Like, what do you see that does that? And then what do you kind of prescribe or what do you suggest they do to be more present? Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify because there's often stressors, external factors. But, you know, one of the things that we know about neurochemistry is that the neurotransmitters that are focused on, keep you focused on the present are different from the ones that keep you focused on the past. Well, certainly the future. Um, and they can't both be running through their circuits simultaneously. They have to be, they ha it has to be uh, one and then the other. They actually work at, uh, to oppose one another. Um, and so the more you can train your mind and train your body to be present. So, I mean, obviously our bodies and minds are highly connected, are, are one. And taking good care of our bodies doing things like exercise, eating well, sleeping well, um, taking care of our minds through reading and study, all of these things, and, and honestly, meditation does help. Um, all of these things together create more of a present focus, and they, are, they all work together to keep us present. And the fresher we are with by taking care of ourselves, the more capable we are of dealing with problems when they come our way, because problems do come. But it's and we have an ama amazing ability to deal with problems, challenges if we're present. If we're not, it's a lot harder. Yeah. Let me turn the conversation now to a discussion of the the inner critic. Because mm -hmm. we all have one, right? And you say uh, in your book, you write, facing your inner critic is necessary but not sufficient because when he is no longer running the show, someone else needs to step up and take over. So I'm wondering if you'll talk a little bit first Some good about writing the, right there. <laughs> it's, br it's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant, right? yeah, brilliant. Right? So will you just talk a little bit about the inner critic and then how – and what do you mean by facing your inner critic is necessary but not sufficient? So – you know, I think that the we all have history, we all have society and our families and our cultures, and our the lessons of our parents and our society and our our, in our culture they're aimed at protecting us. That's that's their sort of that's their job is to make sure that we survive. But surviving and thriving are very different. And often the lessons that we get, even the most well-intentioned lessons, are not necessarily aimed at helping us to thrive, but helping us to survive. And so we sort of get those sort of the critical voice from our progenitors and our cultures. And that voice often becomes the basis of this inner critic that's telling us, no, you can't do or don't do that. And so recognizing that and facing that is, is, is essential. And I talk about this a lot in the book with this specifically with this one woman um, who uh, was making the jewelry and what it was like for her because she, when she started to have some success as a jeweler, she didn't recognize herself. Also, she lost weight and she didn't recognize herself. Um, and she found that, uh, you know, just to be frank, like men were paying more attention to her than it had ever happened. And on the one hand, she, that's sort of what she thought she wanted. But on the other hand, she didn't, she didn't because she was so not used to it 
that she kind of panicked and had a big regression. And so once, once you've done that work, then, then you need to be driving the bus, so to speak, uh, or a different voice needs to be sort of leading you towards something more uh, uh, enriching for yourself. And that's really where, honestly, therapy can be helpful for you, can be helpful to sort of unearth uh, what it is that speaks to you. And that's where uh, facing your, ne- your inner critic is necessary, but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Let me ask you a question about about selecting a therapist. Like, first of mm-hmm. all, even knowing how, like, how does one know when it's time to go, or you know, they might you might benefit from it? Because I think there's probably a lot of people that wonder, or they think you know they think maybe they could, but they're reluctant for some reason. So, I'm really curious about these two things. Like, how do we know when when we might benefit, or it's time to go? And then and then when we're kind of searching, how do we not make the mistake of just going with the first person we see, but what questions should we ask and how do we know if this is the, you know, the right therapist for us? So the first thing is that if you find yourself running over the same ground over and over again, the same problems, that's, and you're, you're trying to solve the problems, but you're not able to do it on your own. That's a good first step the second one is that if you're honestly, if you're uh, eroding your own network by sort of trying to talk through some of this to your your close people, that's that can that can that's a real sign. If your friends are like, Ugh, you know, kind of frustrated because they're your friends and they're there to love you and help you, but they're also not necessarily specialists in this regard. So those are the things that I would suggest. And it is helpful to have someone that's just not in your world that you don't have to face on a daily basis to talk through certain things. So th- that's, that's those answers. And then with regard to how do you know you're in the right place or with the right therapist, that's, that can be a little trickier because we sometimes don't listen to ourselves. You know, I encourage people that come to meet with me to like take their time and to meet with other people. I'm, you know, I'm not for everyone, uh, and that's totally fine. And I, I would definitely encourage you to meet more than one therapist and um, see how that, see how it feels. I mean, it's a little bit like, honestly, it's like a little bit like dating uh, in that you just kind of have to, it just has to feel right. It, there's no, it isn't about degrees or any of that stuff. Obviously, the person needs to be well-trained, but you can have someone that's well-trained that's not particularly helpful. So, so it really is, it sort of comes down to a feeling. Oh, I appreciate that answer. Um, how did you? What'd you do to celebrate? I don't know if "celebrate"s the right word, but uh, acknowledge. What'd you do? To, what'd you do to celebrate World Mental Health Day that took place this week? <laughs> um, so I have, uh, and I can say this because she's put me on her website. I work with a woman who uh, has built. Uh, she she's a very very bright, accomplished woman who. Um, has suffered from significant mental illness, and she built a website specifically to create communities for people who are uh, struggling with mental illness. And so I definitely pushed that out uh, to a lot of people. Uh, her website's called For Like Minds, uh, and it's a really great resource for people who are um, struggling or people that are supporting people that are struggling with mental illness or substance abuse. But it's something that I strongly uh, recommend that people use, uh, and it's it's just so that's what I did. Right on. And is it spelled out F O R for like minds? F O R L I K E M I N D S dot com. Awesome. I'll check it out. Thank you for that. Okay, so the last question I want to ask before we transition to the other parts of the interview, um, I just want to touch on the topic of spirituality and spirituality mm-hmm. as part of. Um, I know in in our culture. Often we dismiss what we can't see, touch, measure, you know, this kind of thing. And in some ways in our culture, I think that science and spirituality are on opposite ends of a spectrum where in a culture like India, they, they're certainly still distinct, but rather than being at opposite ends, they're maybe right up against each other. So that's all kind of a long setup just to ask your personal opinion about 
spirituality and its importance in in health and mental mental health and just our natural development as human beings? I think that I kind of subscribe to the idea of, you know, many paths, uh, one truth, essentially, that like there are a lot of different ways to get there. And I don't think any of them are better than another. Um, We all have different ways of connecting to something larger than ourselves. And it can be mystical, it can be practical, it can be religious, it can, you know, it can be sort of tradition, you know, traditionally religious or non-religious but spiritual. But I think that, again, connecting with something larger than ourselves, some idea or concept or being is critical for us to move forward. And it's just as long as you have something, even something vaguely defined, you're going to be fine. If you, it's just, if you don't have anything and you kind of think, or you don't have any connection to something larger than yourself. I think that that's problematic. Yeah. How can people cultivate? I mean, I know there's a broad, and and we, I won't go too deep on this, but I'm 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 personally fascinated by it, partly because it's been my experience of life is for the first thirty years of my life, first thirty five years, I didn't believe life had meaning. I didn't really know what to believe about a higher power or anything like that, and I I learned that that was a very painful place for me, and I think that many people who live in a similar space of, you know, not knowing and kind of not knowing how to know for themselves can be really a, a source of suffering. Um, yeah. what, what's your kind of advice? I mean, I love that perspective, many paths, one truth. But for somebody who's looking to connect with uh, a deeper source, a higher power, their, their own higher self, like what, what, do you, what do you say to people in that situation? Um, I sort of think about it like diet. Um, I think that you should try like the foods of your parents first and uh, see if that works for you. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, then start looking beyond and looking for people that you look up to or respect and seeing how they're connecting is another way to do that. Um, but that's I, I start with what's closest to you because there's usually some reasonable overlap, um, but not for everyone. And then go with people that you respect or trust. Right on. All right. Well, thank you for that. Okay. So I want to ask just a few short, short questions. Is it like a speed round type deal? Well, I will read them and I won't provide commentary. You can answer as long as you want. Okay. But I've, I've intended them to be answerable briefly. It's totally up to you. Okay. Okay. Number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Okay. Life is like a... Beautiful fall day. All right. Number two, what do you wish you were better at? What do I wish I was better at? I wish I had a a, a musical talent because I value music so much. I just have no talent in that regard. So I wish I had just any kind of musical talent. Okay. How's your singing voice? Before I hit puberty, it was fantastic. And then I hit puberty and it kind of... <laughs> but I was a really beautiful singer when I was very young, actually. So. Wow. Right on. All right. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I think it would be uh, smile. It's worth it. All right. What book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Probably Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Not probably, definitely. Why that book? Uh, it was critical for me. It's the, it's, the, it's the hero's journey, but uh, for people that uh, respect and appreciate Buddhism and enlightenment, and I read it at a very critical time in my life, and I think it's it's all of our journeys. Hmm. All right. So you travel a fair amount. What's something you do or maybe something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I always bring a book, an actual book, not a Kindle or anything like that. Um, and uh, I have a meditation app that I like a lot, Calm that I uh, bring with me and I use a fair amount. 
That's it. I just try to pack light otherwise. Right on. All right. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? <clears throat> Definitely running. And um, trying to keep my Fridays clearer for other opportunities and things. So I, I really um, I try to, if I can avoid it, go, avoid going into the office on Fridays so that I can do other things. So that doesn't always work out, but it's been a nice change for me. What's one thing you wish every American knew? <laughs> I wish every American knew, understood evolution. What specifically about evolution? How it works, um, how we've evolved as a species, uh, because it is the best explanatory device out there. If someone were to learn more other than, you know, put it in their curriculum and then pay attention when it is, <laughs> right? Which, what, what would you say? Are there any books, any authors, any thought leaders alive today that you think oh, yeah. are worth, worth investigating? Richard Dawkins, of course, um, The Selfish Gene, um, The Moral Animal, um, uh, what else is on my shelf that I like a lot? Um, Sapiens is good um, about evolutionary theory. I mean, of course, uh, Origin of the Species, um, Beak of the Finch, um, Codes of Evolution, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Like, you should see my shelf. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you got a whole section just for that. All right. Um, what advice did your parents give you that's impacted you, that's stayed with you? Although you wouldn't know it from this interview, listen first, talk second. I can see that. <laughs> uh, what is, what's your next big project? I mentioned these, uh, these gatherings that I've been doing. Um, really enjoyed them. Um, I really like bringing people together. Um, and it's been just incredibly rewarding to, to, to do that. So I'm just putting a lot of energy into those right now. Do those all take place in New York City? Uh, they have, uh, not in New York city, but in this area of the country, but they, there's, there's going to be some more of them out West, uh, in the spring, but right now they've all thus far all been in New York city or New York city area, I should say. All right. If people want to learn more from you or connect with you, what should they do? Um, you can just go to my website, drbenmichaelis.com, D-R-B-E-N-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-I-S.com. Um, I'm pretty responsive, so feel free to reach out. Awesome. Okay. So I do have just a few writing questions that I want to ask you. Um, before I transition to that, I do want to share with you that I've, uh, as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to share your experience and your insight with me and with all of our listeners today, um, I've made a hundred dollar loan through kiva.org to <laughs> a woman in India named Detubin that she will use this loan to actually help purchase this money will go toward purchasing a Buffalo. It'll help her expand her awesome. dairy business. So I just uh, wanted to let you know that I, that I appreciate Thanks. that. And yes. Yeah. So thank you. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So, so just a few questions related to writing. Um, I want to ask first if you'll just, if you'll give me the thumbnail or you can go deeper, but will you tell me about how you got this book written? I got the farmhouse in Vermont <laughs> right. So there's a farmhouse in Vermont. But tell me about from the moment you decided you would write the book, um, what like how long did it take? What process did you follow? How'd you go about it? I know that we um, tend to do better when we are answerable to someone else. So um, I found a colleague who was also working and we would meet for roughly an hour, hour and a half a week uh, at a cafe and we wouldn't even speak. We would just get there, kind of nod, and then get to work. Um, and that really helped both of us to work on our projects at the same time because I wasn't going to bail on him and he wasn't going to bail on me. Um, and so that was, a, that was key. And then, you know, just um, nights and weekends, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of nights and weekends. But uh, um, 
you know, you, you have to want to write a book because you want, you have something to say, not because you're trying to make money or any of that other stuff, because it will, it'll fail. Or I think it will fail. Um, if it's not, um, really genuine. Yeah. How long did it take you? I know Joseph Heller took eight years to write Catch-22. <laughs> how, yeah. how long did it take you to get this um, book done? God. The better part of a year. Um, the better part of a year uh, is what it took me once I decided what, like, that it, I kind of had a sense of where I wanted it to go. Hmm. What rituals did you have or routines did you follow, if any? Like, did you have a certain tea or did you wear a certain robe or, you know, was there anything like that that kind of got you in state and helped you? in your process? I'm a big believer in cafes. I love cafes. So I, um, I wrote most of it at one cafe in particular here in uh, Brooklyn. Um, I just, you know, I've always sort of found cafes to be kind of romantic in some way. And so I have a hard time working at home. Uh, I don't really do very effective work in my home. So knowing that I had to find another location and, uh, it was always, almost always cafes. If you had it to do again, what would you do differently? And what would you do the same? Um, I would have gone with a different publisher. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they didn't give me a whole heck of a lot of support, um, which was frustrating. So I, I just felt like they weren't a great publisher. Um, but most of the process I would have sort of done the same because I was sort of naive, which is the, the naivete like helped me get it done, like not realizing how hard it was. Mm -hmm. like allowed me to move forward. I didn't, I didn't, you know, uh, like it was the same thing when I first started running marathons. I was like, Oh, I'm gonna run a marathon. Like I didn't think about what that meant until like, I was like, Oh, I got to train and do all this other stuff. Like I had no idea what that really meant. Yeah. So knowing now with the benefit of experience that you say you would have chosen a different publisher, what was it about that publisher that, you know, led you to choose them initially? Um, well, the person that acquired the book was very much behind it, but then she left for a different publishing house or di right. actually she didn't leave. For, she left a different, for a different place. Um, and so it was, it was one person who acquired the book. Um, and so, yeah, it was her, but the publisher itself, I didn't, you know, was not great. What had you hoped the publisher would have done? That, that I just promoted it and um, done just really done kind of they really didn't do much I had to sort of fend for myself with getting the word out yeah so now again knowing that and, and people listening to this um, some of them aspire to write their own books and want to make the most of the experience what questions do you recommend they ask or what do you recommend they do or don't do when it comes to having these conversations with with potential publisher um, I would actually try to find other authors that have worked with that publisher um, and that editor and get their experience. Yeah. Um, that's going to be the best way to, to do it. Yeah. So one of the things I really like about your book is that it's a nice combination of like content and stories that help mm -hmm. unpack that content. And then there's the kind of the quizzes and the questions where as a reader, I get to evaluate myself. I really liked that structure. Will you give me um, some insight into how did you arrive at the the structure of the book, both in terms of the chapters and then the content, uh, like the structure within the chapters and stuff like that? How did how did all that emerge? You know, I I try to when I write, I tend to write questions to myself, and so the idea of sort of having questions and quizzes was really help was like kind of came naturally because I I tend to start writing a section by asking myself a question and writing down that question. Like, oh, what is it that you're trying to convey? Um, what's the most effective way of doing it? Um, and so at some point I was like, I started to put in these kind of questions and then the editor was like, oh, I love that. I think that's really helpful for people. Can you do more of that? Um, and the stories were naturally, because it was really all about this one woman at first, going to be... Uh, all about her. And then I just had to provide different stories with different people I worked with. But I got plenty of stories. I mean, I've been doing my job as a therapist in private practice for about 15 years. Um, so I got plenty of stories. <laughs> does writing energize you or does it exhaust you? <sighs> Depends. Uh, sometimes it's a slog. 
Uh, and sometimes I just get when 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 you have an idea that's well expressed, it's like the most exciting thing in the world and energizing. Uh, but it really depends. Um, you know, I, I can think about one moment also in Vermont uh, when I was at a Starbucks and this idea I'd been working on, like uh, it just sort of came together and like the end of the paragraph was a really nice sentence. And I was like, I remember just being so excited, like almost like vibrating. I was so excited about it. That's awesome. So, how how can we as writers write more of those sentences like more easily <laughs> more often what's the what's the trick Brian I wish I knew I mean I think the answer is just keep writing um, yeah. which I know is like it's a lousy answer but it's the only I don't have a better answer than that like you just have to keep at it because 90% of what you write is maybe not great but 10% can be really good if you you know edit it yourself well and get a good editor yeah What's your what's your insight about first of all finding an editor and then about again knowing that you've got one that that that's going to be great in the long term? Well, I mean, I think it's you know it's like shared vision. Um, do they share your vision for what you're trying to do? You know, look at books that you admire and see who edited them. Yeah, and then try to get in touch with those editors either through direct connections or you know just emailing them cold. When you when you write. Like when you're on a project like this book, um, did you give yourself a word count per day or, you know, a time commitment or anything like that? How did, did you set like many targets for yourself? Time, I tried to do time commitment, um, you know, cause you could write for an hour and have a super productive hour. You could write for three and get nothing. But I, I tried to just keep a time commitment and then some days I would exceed it. And again, having someone that I was sort of, uh, kind of responsible to helped also that, you know, I wanted to come back each week when we met, um, with, you know, significantly more done. So as a, like, as a matter of process, what, what tools did you use? I mean, did you use Microsoft word? Did you write on a Mac? Did you like, how did you keep things organized and all that? Microsoft word, um, you know, with the, um, outline function, uh, uh is the way I did it. Like it's, uh, I probably would use Google Docs now, but um, this was, uh, I was still a Microsoft Word guy at that point. <laughs> what advice do you have for people who are, you know, by the way, this reminds me, I asked, I asked a publisher once, I said, do you think it's true that everybody has one book, at least one book in them? And she said, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, but, but anyway, this, so this question brought that to mind, which is what advice do you have for people who still have a book in them and they want to get it out, but they've got that apprehension or the inner critic is just so loud. Uh, like what advice do you have for that person at the beginning of this? You know, team up, if you can team up with someone, uh, again, like I did, not that we had the same project, we were doing very vastly different things, but if you, you know, we tend to be more responsible to others than to ourselves. And if you make a commitment to someone else, you're much more likely to keep it than if you are to your, just to yourself, unfortunately. And so pairing up is, is definitely a good strategy. Yeah. You read your own book reviews? Uh, I, I don't, actually. Uh, how do you have this self-discipline? Like, why don't you? Oh, my you? gosh. <laughs> because I've, I've worked with so many people in the public eye, and I can see the damage that's done when you read other people's reviews, positive or negative. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's a dangerous, dangerous road to go down, so I don't. Wow. Well, I, re- I read them, and they're pretty good, by the way. So. Mm, all right. Well, cool. <laughs> good. Yeah. Okay. Um, awesome. So what question – do you wish that somebody would ask you about your book that nobody has yet, or at least you don't get asked all that often? I guess people, because it was really about this one woman, I guess people, I be, I'm surprised that not more people, not many people have asked me about her. Um, I stopped working with her when she, her career took off. Um, and I don't know where she is, wow. uh, right now, but I, I know that she was doing very well when we stopped working together, but it, it, uh, you know, I hope that she's still doing really well. Yeah. Okay. Well, Dr. Ben, thank you so much for making time to chat with me today and share, again, your experience and your insights with 
with me and with uh, anyone who's listening to this. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And as I said, I, I really enjoyed your book. And I'm grateful that you, that you wrote it and that you made the time to talk with me today. Well, thanks very much, Brian. It's really been a pleasure. I, I enjoyed this conversation and our last one as well. And uh, I do hope that our paths cross again soon. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. I hope that you took away something that uh, you'll implement in your life, maybe in your writing, to make a difference for others that you uh, will maybe have taken something away that will inspire you to serve. So with that, until next time, take care.